<clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. I decided that I would go by my middle name, Janina. It didn't feel like me, but it, it did make things easier. There was less explaining to do. But then I, I decided to go back to Mariket. Like, no, I have to make this work. And you, I started to doubt my myself. Am I just not trying hard enough? In this episode, we explore how Marikit Fernando tackled growing up in the U.S. with a very Filipino name. Raised in a predominantly white neighborhood in Queens, New York, she was exposed to Filipino culture through language and dance. We dive into those topics and discuss depression, toxic jobs, the law of attraction, and so much more. Now a published author, Marikit teaches us to dream big. This is Partially Pinoy, and we are powered by Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics. I, I, would, I would almost equate your name to like what Catherine is in England or in Iran. I have a daughter named Roya. It's like a very Persian, very dignified, you know, multi-generational name. And so tell me to you, what is the most perfect pronunciation of it? Well, first off, thank you for having me, Layla. It's been great to connect with you. And the way that you said my name was perfect, just with the Tagalog pronunciation, Mariket. Mariket. It was, it was already perfect the way that you said it. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So the first question I like to ask my guests is the question I always get, when I tell people I'm half Filipino and half Iranian, it's how did your parents meet? So tell me, Marikit, how did your parents meet? My parents met through a friend and they started writing letters to each other. At this point, my dad was in New York, but he's originally from Sicily and my mom was in the Philippines. So they wrote letters to each other until the day that my dad took a trip to the Philippines uh, with a friend and he met my mom there and they fell in love. <laughs> okay, so your dad was born in Sicily and he was living in New York at the time. Was he at the time looking for a girlfriend? Was he looking for a wife? How did he, was this, he was having a pen pal in a foreign country kind of a common thing among his circles? Um, I know that my my dad's friend in the post office was Filipino and my dad actually wanted to take a trip to India. It was always a dream of his to go to India and his Filipino friend said, well, why don't you go to the Philippines to my mom? It's a very complicated story with lots of details, <laughs> but um, I, I even asked my parents to this day, like, okay, wait, um, what about this thing and that thing? There's a lot of details, but yes, in general, they met through a friend, started writing to each other and they met and they fell in love. Wow. So there's a lot of uh, blanks to fill that I will have to ask your parents, I guess, when I meet them, <laughs> those, yes, I think those so. <laughs> details, details. Uh, and so you grew up in Queens, part of Queens that I know best are Astoria and Forest Hills. And I think those are very opposites when you think of Queens, Astoria, and Forest mm -hmm. Hills. You know, I've gotten a flavor of that. I also know how international it is. 
tell me about those early days of, you probably didn't think much about the diversity that existed, if it existed. Can you speak about that a little bit? Well, there's a lot of different places in Queens, like you said, and the neighborhood that I grew up in was a white neighborhood. Um, So, yeah, I always knew that I was different from my classmates. And at the same time, we went to the Filipino neighborhoods to do like grocery shopping. And it was different. It, it, It made me nervous to meet other Filipino people my age for the first time. And it made me insecure about myself. So it sounds like from K to middle school, you went to predominantly white school in your neighborhood. This was a public school. It was a Catholic school. And then in high school, was high school also a Catholic school? Yes. Were there moments in your childhood where you became aware that in conversation with, you know, these kids, like, you know, you're a little bit different or anything like that when you were younger, younger. My, my friends knew I was Filipino. I don't know if they knew what that meant, but it's definitely like always been an important part of my identity. And I knew that I was different because my best friend had blonde hair and blue eyes. And I remember telling my parents, I want to look like her. Where, where do kids get these ideas that, that they want to look like someone else? But I guess that's what I was exposed to. And I noticed that there was a difference. And I was always really proud to be Filipino. I remember one instance where this friend of mine, the blonde, blue-eyed girl, we were playing house. And there was like this plastic butter container, you know, the one with the lid on top. And she said to me, what is this called? And I said, it's called Lagayan Nung Butter. <laughs> yeah, and I remember telling my mom, Patricia didn't know the name for Lagayan Nung Butter. <laughs> so I was always really, really comfortable um, with my identity and proud. There's a difference very early on. That's so awesome. It sounds like there weren't a lot of negative experiences in your early years related to your being mixed. Uh, Tell me if that changed in high school or or what started happening in high school, especially as you were exposed to more diversity. Even in my younger years, I, I noticed something that I couldn't quite put my finger on, which I later learned are microaggressions. And it had to do with my name a lot of the time. My classmates and my teachers really could not say my name, even though I would tell them how it's pronounced. And so I remember this one instance. I don't remember how old I was, but it was the first day of school. And anyone with a non-Western name knows the stress of the first day of school because the teacher reads the names, right? And so there's that long pause before your name. And so the teacher started sounding it out. She was like, ma, ma. And so I was ready to say my name. And I was so excited that I could say my name and correct my, my classmates and tell my teacher how to say my name. But before I could open my mouth, my classmate yells out, and I mean yells, 
the pronunciation of my name that he thinks is correct. And I remember my heart racing and like my throat tightening up and feeling like, what happened? Like, that was my moment to say my name. And he took it away from me. The teacher just believed that pronunciation and uh, the teacher didn't ask me how, how to say my name. And I, I don't remember how young I was, but I was quite young and shy. And I kind of felt like, well, that was it. I missed my chance. I was too shy to speak to her one-on-one -on -one and say like, hey, this is actually the way you say my name. Because I learned from a young age that people really, really struggled to say my name. So I kind of figured like, oh, I guess it just doesn't work. Yeah. You know, th this is very interesting in the context of all of the discussions that we're having right now on race and identity, because there are two things that I've learned in this last week related to, you know, this idea of boldness in who you are and how we sometimes as people of color in America are trained to behave. And so one of it is actually in your interview that I listened to uh, with the Filipino American Women Project. It came up briefly in your conversation that, you know, some people are so confident in how they're telling you how your name should be pronounced or who they think you are. And like, I think just in passing, one of the hosts said, like, where do they even get that? Like, where do they get that? <laughs> and, you know, I listened to it and I thought, mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's, you get it from 400 years of being told that you are the greatest, you know, that has ever walked the earth and therefore already know everything. And then the other is that, you know, through Clubhouse, I found a woman of color who had sort of this, either, either in her description or somewhere on her Instagram page, explained that she was learning from her white female friends how to not diminish herself because as a woman of color, mm. she felt that that was the default, you know, to sort of really come into her own. And so I think, you know, I think it's so interesting that even from a young age, both you and, and you know, for me it was later on because we didn't come here until I was in my teens, felt that somehow we didn't have a voice. And I, I love your description of like your throat closing up because that really has to do with mm -hmm. your voice. And, and so was there, was there a time in, you know, as you're growing up, maybe getting older that it dawned on you that this was something that you needed to explore and not just something that you are. So did that, I imagine that would start somewhere in high school. Was that true for you? Well, I stuck with my name, my name up until college. Just, I just kept trying to, to teach people. Um, and it just wasn't working. So by the time I started working, I decided that I would go by my middle name, Janina. It didn't feel like me, but it, it did make things easier. There was less explaining to do. But then I, I decided to go back to Mariket. Like, no, I have to make this work. And you, I started to doubt my, myself. Am I just not trying hard enough? 
But in reality, I've been trying for so many years. The problem is, is that people add letters, remove letters, make up a totally different name. And it's just, it's kind of impossible just in my personal experience. So I went back to my full name. And then again, I reached a point where I said, this isn't working. I was even reaching a point where I didn't want to introduce myself to people. And that was like a really personal thing that I shared with her. And she was like, oh, no. She's like, we can't have you feeling that way. And so she gave me the nickname Mari. So then I started to use that professionally and with people who are not Filipino, basically. So at this time, I'm going by a nickname and my full name, depending on the context. How does it feel to go by this nickname? It feels pretty good, honestly, because it still kind of reflects my name in a way. It's at least there's the, the letters are there. When I notice that people mispronounce names, I feel like, not mispronounced, but almost deliberately, like my husband's name is Niber, but sometimes he gets called Nigel. He gets called all kinds of things, you know, Niebauer, neighbor, it's, it's all over the place. And so, so we tell them, oh, it's like, it's like fiber with an N or cyber with mm-hmm. an N. And I realize that so much of it is about the intentionality that is lacking from the person who is listening or hearing because I think it's okay if they don't get it right the first time mm-hmm. but I think yeah, that you know totally. the, the desire to actually get it right needs to be there because then you realize you're like oh well, you just don't care <laughs> like obviously you just don't care to get it right and, and even simple names like I've met a couple of people whose names are spelled A-L-Y-S-S-A and just recently met someone whose name is A-L-I-S-A and what I thought was like Alyssa Milano spelling mm-hmm. Alyssa. She said, no, it's Alisa. So then I knew meeting this other person, is it Alisa or Alyssa? And she said, it's Alisa, which is maybe the less conventional pronunciation. But I think, I think it's so, maybe because I'm sensitive to name pronunciations myself, but it's just so important. Like if the name is such a fundamental part of who a person is, and if you can't make the effort to get that right, it just says so much about Mm-hmm. your priorities, I guess. Tell me about, you know, the language piece of this, of having grown up. I think it was so amazing because I speak Farsi and Tagalog, and I know you speak conversational Tagalog and understand it, which I think is a kudos to our mothers, very heavily exposed and expected to be connected to the language and how that affected you and how it enriches you now. Yeah, my mom was determined to teach us Tagalog. So she spoke to us at home in Tagalog, and we had to answer her back also in Tagalog um, to, you know, really encourage us to practice. And really what my mom did was the right thing, because that was the only way we were going to learn. We didn't have other Filipino family members around us. My mom was my only source for Filipino culture. So it had to be between the three of us. Like we had to practice. And I have to thank my dad was so encouraging of us learning Tagalog. And he was so encouraging of us being in touch with our Filipino heritage in many ways, right? 
by going to the Philippines with our mom and we were involved in some cultural activities like dance. But I do think that language has been a really important piece. And I love Tagalog. I'm always working on improving and I'm always listening to Tagalog music. And yeah, it's a big part of my life. So when you were speaking Tagalog, so first of all, do you uh, speak Italian or does your dad yes, speak Italian? Yes, my father speaks Italian or, or the dialect would be Sicilian. But he speaks both. I, I didn't learn that language. Do you wish that you did? Yes, honestly, I do because because I know how connected it makes you feel to a culture. And also I wish that I would have been able to speak to my grandparents because they only spoke Sicilian. And so we definitely loved each other, but we couldn't really talk about anything. So that makes me a little bit sad. We'll return to our show and hear more from our guest in just a moment. I think that one is a really loaded one. And I think with my own future kids, like I know that they're only going to be an eighth Filipino, but that doesn't make them any less Filipino than me. This show is brought to you by Podcast Network Asia, powered by Podmetrics. Podmetrics takes care of the details so we can focus on making the best content for you. Visit podmetrics.co and sign up for free. Use code PARTIALLYPINOY. What's your favorite Filipino dance? I know what mine is, but I want to hear what your most favorite Filipino dance is. My favorite is uh, Binisuan. Tell, tell me what you love about Binisuan. Well, it's more from a personal experience because I was in this dance group and we were practicing, we were learning that dance for the first time. And I was the youngest member of the group and like kind of the underdog. And so when we learned it the first time, I broke the glass and you know, nobody else broke, broke the glass, but I did. And so, you know, whatever, it was not a huge deal, but it it gave me even more fire, more inspiration to really do the dance well. And so I just practiced for hours and hours. There's especially like this very nice floor, floor work part where you kind of roll around while you're balancing. Those are the reasons why I like it. I think Filipino dances are so unique. Mine is tinikling. Have you tried tinikling? I, yeah, I tried it a little bit, but that was like considered the most difficult dance that like the senior dancers would do. So I kind of just like dipped my toe, no pun intended. (laughs) What were those early exposures to dance and your early love for it? Hmm. I started going to dancing school when I was six years old because I went to a birthday party at a dance school and my mom noticed that I really liked it. She enrolled me in classes and I danced from the age of six up until about 24 nonstop. And I danced 
different styles like tap, jazz, ballet, Filipino folk, Filipino folk dance and belly dance. And then uh, really bad years of depression. Let's talk about that. So you, you danced until the age of 24 and then you lived through some years of depression. So how did, what was the onset of that and how did it relate to the dance you were doing and also what you were doing outside of dance? I was diagnosed with depression when I was 19, uh, though I think that I started suffering before that and I think it built up over time. And I was able to manage that depression with therapy and medication, but I reached a point where things were just really bad. And at that time, I was actually in a professional dance company, and it was very hard to maintain that along with depression because depression affects you in so many ways. It not only affects your mood. Um, I was unable to continue dancing with that group. And I ended up just leaving dance because everything was falling apart in my life, my relationships, my job, you know, everything. And so, yeah, I would say there were three years of really uh, deep depression. Uh, at a certain point, I felt that urge to go back to dance in my heart. And I was lucky enough to meet a woman who is a life coach and she helped me to go back to my passion. Okay, so this is really fascinating because I, I love what you said in your other interview and that is that you were meant to be more than an office worker. Mm -hmm. and I just think that quote, like that is the ultimate quote for so many people who are creative like you and me. Tell me about your own journey into corporate life, office job life, and your, your, you know, the, your journey out of it. After college, I basically had a lot of like temporary office jobs because I graduated. It was, we were in the middle of a recession. So I took on whatever office jobs I could and the one that I was at in particular when um, when I was really depressed, um, that office job just, I felt that it didn't matter if I showed up or not. Like I didn't feel that the job was important. I moved things around the screen. I, you know, I filled out spreadsheets. I went to meetings. And when I started dancing again and working with the coach that I mentioned, it made me a little bit braver to to do different things. To um, I went to a Filipino meetup and I met my husband there and two of my really good friends. I, I left that office job and I decided that I would become a teacher, that I would teach English as a second language. And I started performing again. And all these beautiful things do happen when we get back in touch with our creativity. Um, I started writing about my story of returning to dance. And I ended up publishing a book about it. 
Let's talk about that book for a second, because I want to give you the opportunity to talk about it. I know it's it's sort of almost like a step-by-step demonstration, maybe, of how you found dance and decided to pursue it. So tell me about, um, I'm sure the book had been a thought in your mind for a long time, and then it kind of all came together over the last year, correct? Yes, correct. I started working on it a few years ago, just as a healing Uh, practice because I kept going back in my mind thinking about just kind of almost even blaming myself for leaving dance so I had to just clarify for myself what exactly happened and and what I was going through at that time so yeah I started writing it to heal and then when the pandemic hit work was on and off for me so I had this time to really focus on writing my story And so, yes, it's called Back to Dance, How I Revived My Dance and My Spirit and How You Can Too. And so I talk about my journey of finding dance, leaving dance, and then coming back to it. Ten steps that I took to have a fulfilling dance practice again. It was a really meaningful project for me because it's really my intention and my wish and my hope that I could inspire somebody else we we definitely need support whether it's from a coach or a book or some type of mentor something outside of ourselves and i think it's also very beautiful that as human beings we are given an an opportunity to find ourselves through movement and through our bodies and i think Mm -hmm. obviously dance is that but so is writing. It's, it's a physical moving of the body. I think oftentimes we're just said, just willpower, just use your willpower and anything is possible. And I think so much of it is just about the moving of the body. And I know for myself, you know, with exercise, I 99% of the reason why I do it is for my mental health. And whatever other physical benefit I get from it, great. But I think it requires the movement and the moving and the putting on of the shoes and the going out there. And so, you know, with the culture we have where a lot of us are just sort of stuck in front of our screens. And this was even before COVID, you know, or even children. I think about this, you know, I ache for my own kids and how this past year has been for them. There's just something about movement. find that fascinating. I agree with you. I think movement is really healing. You know, you look back and you, you maybe have time to digest uh, the feelings that you had in your depression. Is it something even that can be analyzed or was it just what it was? You know, like, like when you look back and you think that's, that's Mm -hmm. sort of the something I had to bear like when, when you look back on that, what are your thoughts on your own experience with depression? I believe that depression is a chemical imbalance, which has been proven by science. And so it's not something that we should blame ourselves for. It's, it's not our fault. However, I, I do wish that I knew some, some ways to manage it when I was going through those hard times. And I wish that somebody told me, don't give up dance, you know, keep dancing because that's going to heal you and and dance for yourself. Find friends who genuinely support you. 
find a job. <laughs> it's not easy, but find a job that is more fulfilling, easier said than done. But I wish I had those, those ideas, those concepts to grasp onto. I was so lost when I was depressed. I just thought, oh, I just take medication and, that, and that's what makes me feel better. But it didn't. I didn't have the tools back then. So I accept it for what it was. It did. It happened. I learned a lot from it. And hopefully I can help anyone else who's going through that. In a book I read recently called Late Bloomers, there's a beautiful quote that I think would resonate with a lot of people who maybe feel like they're in the wrong place. And it says, when a flower doesn't bloom, you don't try to fix the flower, you fix the environment in which it blooms. There's so much in, the, in those few little words about self-care and boundaries. Yeah, I like that too. Tell me now how you incorporate your identity as a half Filipino into who you are. You married a Filipino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I... I reached a point in my life where I was single for a while and I was actually reading this book about the law of attraction and it, it was uh, about this exercise about attracting what you want by being clear on what you want. So writing a list of all the qualities that you want in a partner or in a job or whatever it was. And the, the writer of the book encouraged us to write as many qualities as we could, like maybe 50 to 100. So I was like, okay, I don't really have anything better to do, have not met anyone that I want to date in like the past three years. So I'm going to make this list. What is the name of this book? Because I think a lot of people <laughs> would <laughs> like to know. It's just called The Law of Attraction. The author's last name is spelled L-O-S-I-E-R. So, yes, I, I wrote 103 qualities, I think. And when I got to 103, I got this feeling inside of me to write Filipino as 103. And I had to kind of fight with myself because, you know, we're told from a young age, it doesn't matter what people are, just love who you love. And I agree completely, of course. So I kept kind of fighting myself, like, well, why does that matter? Why would I write that down? It doesn't matter what race or ethnicity the person is. But I couldn't shake that feeling. So I wrote it down, you know, item 103, Filipino. I let go of the list. I even forgot about the list. But... Um, I went to that Filipino meetup, like I mentioned, with the intention of meeting new friends, because I reached a point where I outgrew my college friends, and I really was feeling kind of lonely. So I went there to meet friends, and who knew that, you know, I would meet my future husband there. We want to say hi and big thanks to the guys from Kumu. Kumu is a Pinoy live streaming app where you can tambay with Filipino streamers and celebrities. Use our link in the description to follow some amazing Kumu streamers. You seem to have thought very deeply about all of these different aspects of who you are and who you want to be. 
how do you think being mixed race has provided the both opportunities, but also kind of the push to really explore these parts of yourself deeply? I think that my mixed race experience has made me feel alone many times in my life. And so when I was a teenager, I would always wish to see someone on TV who I could relate to. And, um, you know, Britney Spears was not relatable. Jennifer Lopez (laughs) was not relatable. So I would spend so much time like there was, I wasn't even using Google at the time. I guess it was like Yahoo or something like searching for mixed race celebrities because I, I just wanted to find someone like me. So I have a lot, I know a lot of random information about mixed race celebrities, but I was unable to find someone who was like me. So I think that that yearning to belong and, um, I don't know, the, the whole experience just made me more sensitive to other people who may feel like they don't belong or there's something different about them. So that's why I, I try to learn people's names. I try not to make comments that would offend people, particularly about their racial identity. So when I share my racial identity with people, sometimes um, the comments are invalidating or dismissive. And like what we were talking about, people will tell you what you are, which is so frustrating. So I just, I try not to do that to other people. That's what I've learned, I think, from my mixed race experience is to let people tell you who they are. And we all make assumptions, it's only human, but we need to question those assumptions and listen to other people's experiences. And instead of trying to correct their experience, you, we should listen and learn from it. What is next for you? So I'm going to continue writing and dancing and seeing where that leads me. I'm a big believer in dreaming. So I I dreamt that I would write a book. I actually dreamt that I would be interviewed by a podcast. I dreamt that I would make a choreography to the song I was named after, which is Between Mariket. And I recently did that. So I really believe in in the power of dreams. I'm currently dreaming about the next things that I want to do. And I I do keep those dreams mostly to myself. And then when, when they're almost ready, that's when I start sharing because I really enjoy the dreaming process and I like to, to dream really big. Partially Pinoy is a Podcast Network Asia production in partnership with Bridger Media in Los Angeles. Our show is developed and executive produced by Leila Jerusalem. The series is produced by Nikai Lucanias.
The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. <laughs>